Good morning. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a pleasure to share God's Word with you today. Be in James chapter 4, starting in verse 10, if you want to turn in your Bibles to that passage. And let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you, you who are majestic and supreme and above all, glorious and unapproachable in glory, the one who has revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ, the one who is the judge of all the earth and the author and finisher of our faith, and we delight to do your will and to know you, to proclaim your goodness to all. And thank you for the life that we have through Jesus and the promises of eternal life and of your presence with us even now. And we pray, Lord, you would continue to reveal yourself to each one, that you would sustain and encourage and strengthen the body of Christ, and that you would minister your truth to our hearts, that we would walk in it and honor you now and always in Jesus' name. Amen. You'd agree that knowing what to do and doing it are two different things? We've had a lot of good examples of this during the Olympic Games, if you've been tuning into that of late. To represent Australia at the Games, you have to be a winner. Uh, it means you've qualified by besting opponents in your discipline, so you understand what it takes to win. You've already done it. Uh, and despite all the skill, the knowledge, and the practice that people have and how to compete, the rules of the sport, what their plan is and strategy to win, not everyone is able to do it on the day. We've seen uh, long jumpers fault. They, they know where the line is, but they, they stepped over it. Um, a, a gymnast who falls from the beam or uh, a diver who intends to go in head first after doing twists and somersaults, but goes in feet first instead. So there was knowledge to do the thing, but it didn't happen. They didn't actually do it. And we don't have to be Olympians to identify with this, that we don't always do what we know is right or what we intend to do. Um, just this week, I made an online purchase and it's something that I know I should do. You know, read the fine print about return policies. And, and if I had read that, I would see, oh, they don't actually offer cash back, my money back if I uh, want to return an item, but I only can have store credit. So don't make that mistake. Um, knowing what to do does not mean that you always do it and that you care to even do what's right. Let's not give ourselves that um, credit when, when we know what to do right and we intentionally do not do it. So there's, there's something, uh, we can attempt to do something and fail, but there are also times where we know what's right and we neglect to do it. Knowing is important, but it isn't everything. And as believers, we have the privilege of having God's will revealed to us, the things that please God, and we can know these things. It's not some ambiguous, arbitrary, unknown thing. God has revealed his will, and he has given us an example through Jesus. He's given us his word that we can read and glean knowledge from, and we can place an emphasis on knowing, knowing God's will to move ahead or knowing what the future holds, uh, but we don't always live according to it. It's kind of like a sprinter that veers out of the lane and is disqualified from the race. A lot of what James addressed in this letter to Jewish believers involves the tongue. He talks about how we should be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, 
And we've been reminded of our need to bridle our tongues, uh, that a little spark can set a great forest on fire, a great, uh, start a great bushfire. And what we say, how we say it, it matters to God. Therefore, it ought to matter to us because we seek to please him as his people. And we can be guilty of blessing God one moment and then cursing someone made in the image of God the next. And this passage today, it exhorts believers to stop judging others and boasting because we all do this, not because someday we might. We've been guilty of this before, and we will likely be guilty of it again. But we are being reminded of what God's will is and how we should live to please Him. And God's so faithful to diagnose our sin, our um, sickness, and also provides the cure repentance and faith in Christ, and wisdom to walk wisely in the future. We'll begin in James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Jesus taught the words we say. It reveals what's in our hearts. James has said that salt and fresh water do not flow from the same source. And words that are salty with proud boasting, it exposes pride in our hearts. We can't claim to have hearts free from sin if our mouths are filled with cursing or bitterness. We can demonstrate humility before God by admitting our sin without excuses. We're not blaming others. And um, this brokenness for our sin, it's really necessary uh, to repent, to turn from it, to turn towards God, to begin to do the things that please Him. The one who is humble before God, their words will be marked with grace and mercy and compassion, refusing to speak evil of others, even when wronged. James says, do not speak evil of another brethren. The word here, evil, it's to slander or to defame. Slanderous words, they're spoken to undermine or to attack someone, whether maliciously or just carelessly. And Webster says this, that slander tends to injure the reputation of another by lessening him in the esteem of his fellow citizens. A common way that we can do this, we can slander others, is with labels. We can label somebody in a word or a phrase that has a negative light. It's a derogatory term that can damage their reputation. It's, it's like words that we used when we were kids, or you heard in the school ground, where someone was a teacher's pet, or someone was stuck up. And so you could say to someone, oh, he is or she is so stuck up. And by saying that, we are defaming them. We are putting them in a box. We are summing up the whole character of the person as a negative thing that will influence other people to look at them through that lens and to have a negative view of them, to show our disapproval. This ought not to be. We can speak evil and slander by tail-bearing, by gossip, telling stories about someone else to other people that are not being, they're not actually impacted by the situation itself. Um, speaking evil of a brother, it shows we have judged them to be in the wrong. 
when the law says, you shall not bear false witness. So we're painting them in a negative light and influencing others to do the same. We should ask ourselves, why should we condemn as evil when scripture or laws of the land do not find fault? It's really good for us to think about. Is this actually sin? And if it is a sin, we who are spiritual ought to seek to restore such a one in a spirit of humility and meekness. That's seen in Galatians 6.1. If we do so, if we condemn as evil or we speak negative of someone or evil of someone, we slander them, we are assuming the position of a judge that we are the ones who are empowered to interpret the law according to our opinions or our judgments. Now, Moses was in that position. God gave Moses the law. And Moses would judge the people. When they had cases that were too difficult for the elders, they would bring them before Moses. And he, he wouldn't make the judgment. The Bible had made the judgment, right? The Torah, the law had made the judgment, but he would interpret that judgment of God upon that situation. Now, we're not sitting in Moses' seat. Jesus is our king. He is the judge. He's the one who decides. So it's not for us to negatively judge others because they are not following our convictions or we don't approve of their methods. That is not our position to take. It's not our call. And we can be very quick and bold to assert, oh, he's wrong, she's right, or regardless. We, we make these judgment calls and we say them to others uh, boastfully at times, and that should not be. God's revealed his judgments only those who submit to the Lord can walk in his wisdom. In Luke 12, there's this really interesting passage. Jesus had exhorted people to fear God, to, to, uh, to, and he, he said God has value for you. He has promised that whoever confesses Jesus as Lord, he will confess before the angels, and that the Holy Spirit in their hour of need would teach them what to say. So there is some really great promises here that Jesus was saying. This is, your, this is available to you by the grace of God. This was what happened right after in Luke 12, verse 13 through 15. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter, ar arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Pretty remarkable, right? The man's demand had nothing to do. It was not a response at all to the promises Jesus had made. He said, God values all. God can save you. God can guide you for eternity. And then this guy's talking about, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance of me. Set my brother straight. But Jesus set the man straight by revealing his covetousness to everyone. The law said in Deuteronomy 21, 17, the eldest son was to be given a double portion. This man thought he was being unjustly treated. Maybe he was. Whether or not the letter of the law was being kept by his brother, that wasn't the point. The point Jesus made and had everyone else addressed too was their own covetousness. So whether or not your brother should divide the inheritance with you or not, that's not the point. The point is, you have covetousness. Beware of it. Make sure that it doesn't have a place 
in your life, that you are confessing your sin. And many of us have been drawn into squabbles to make judgments, yet the only righteous man, Jesus, notice, he wouldn't serve as judge or jury in a situation. He would not make a judgment, even though he knew the hearts of the, everyone involved. He knew the whole situation, yet he would not make a judgment because that was not his position at that time. If someone has offended us, we ought to heed the Matthew 18, 15 mandate given us by Jesus to take that person aside one-on-one and to tell them their offense with the heart to be reconciled with them. Now, if being reconciled to a brother disgusts you and the idea puts you off, isn't that pride and sin? We ought to seek reconciliation. We are brothers. We are one in the body of Christ. This man, he did not seek the counsel of God. There's a difference between asking God for guidance and making a demand of him. He made up his mind what ought to be done. He was right. His brother was wrong. And Jesus should do something about it and what Jesus should do about it. But Jesus refused to be brought into this squabble. This man, he stood, but he, he was in sin by coveting what his brother had, by judging his brother and slandering him in front of everyone. Due to this, he missed the promises of God that Jesus had offered freely for him to receive by faith. So it's ironic, right? The one who wants Jesus to set things right, his heart wasn't right. And that demand on Christ exposed it. James says that if we speak evil and judge our brother, we speak evil of the law and we judge the law. You want justice, believer? Well, The first step is to humble yourself before God and walk justly in ordering your words and your heart according to his law, speaking words seasoned with grace and love. There's a time and a place to go to court to settle legitimate claims, but that's not the point James is making here. When we slander a brother as doing wrong, like this man did who approached Jesus, It shows we don't trust God to deal with sinners. If we believe God does so, we would not slander because we know his take on hypocrites, right? We we wouldn't invite that judgment upon ourselves. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this about Jesus. He serves as both the executive and judicial branches of the divine government. God is king. He institutes and declares his law. God is judge. He upholds and enforces his law. As the lawgiver, God has the authority and the right to modify, to overrule law as he sees fit, not according to our judgments, according to his grace and his mercy. An example of this we see, I read it this week in my devotions in 2 Chronicles 30. King Hezekiah, the the southern kingdom of Judah had been in a terrible spiritual state. They had been neglecting uh, the worship of God in the temple. And so Hezekiah is like, you know what? We should celebrate the Passover as is written in the law. And so he did a huge thing to not only invite Judah, but he sent messengers in the northern kingdom uh, to, to invite the people to come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover and to present themselves before the Lord according to the law. So that was a big deal. Well, These messengers went up north and they were largely scorned and mocked for their invite. But there were some who humbled themselves to come to Jerusalem. 
And they had not observed the Passover for generations like this, where people had come from great distances, people who were now steeped in idolatry, who wanted to draw near to God, who wanted to honor and obey him, but they were ignorant of some of the requirements of the law and how to sanctify themselves. So um, some of the people did not sanctify themselves, but ate of the Passover. Listen to what happens in 2 Chronicles 30, 18 through 20. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them saying, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. One of the countless examples of God's grace from the Old Testament. People came with a heart to obey God, to, to draw near to him, to honor him, but they did not keep the law. Yet God looked upon their heart, their desire, and he healed them. He made them whole. He was merciful to those who humbly came before him. And if we judge ourselves according to the same standard that we hold for others and conduct our speech according to what we know is right, loving and gracious, we will avoid great sin. There's only one lawgiver. It isn't us. It isn't me and it isn't you. And God is able to save. God is able to destroy. He is the judge of all the earth. James says, who are you to judge one another? Now, at the Olympics, the uh, participants, the athletes, were not able to play before, before large audiences because of uh, the pandemic. But have you ever watched like a soccer final or um, the World Cup where you've got two teams of 11 people on each side? And you've got the linesmen, two on one on either side, and then the head referee who's running around on the pitch making the calls. And we've all seen it. An attacking player is going for the ball and falls down like he's been shot. He grabs at his ankle, and the ref just overlooks it, doesn't do anything. Another time, someone else, they're, they're involved in a tackle. They're taken out, and the, the referee blows the, the whistle, goes over, and he issues a yellow card. And it's a warning, a penalty. And the players can raise their arms and discuss it. Go, what's that? Like, that's so unfair. And the coach can stomp around on the sidelines and throw his clipboard. And, and all the fans can boo and hurl insults of the worst kind towards the referee. But guess what? What they think doesn't matter. It, I mean, it matters to them, but it's not going to change the outcome of the game. The ref is the only one who can make that decision. The decision is made. That decision is final. It stands. Players and fans can be bitter about it, but the ref is the one who makes the call. And so it is with God, the judge of the earth. Being human, we all make mistakes. The best refs don't always get things right, but God, the judge of all, cannot fail. He is always wise and he is merciful, gracious, and relents from doing harm. So let's leave the judgment of our brothers in the Lord's hands. He will... He will take care of everyone in, in a, a good way. Praise the Lord for that. James 4.13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. 
for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. The tongues we can use to praise God, to bless God, or to slander, we can also use them to boast about what we will do. We can judge others on, by what we don't know. We don't know all the facts, but we can still make a judgment. And we can also make plans according to our limited, short-sighted focus. James asked, who are you to judge one another? And then asked, what is your life? In our judgments and plans, we can make assumptions that don't account for God at all. His, his ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Our lives in the light of eternity, it's like a vapor. It's like steam on the mirror that you open the window and it's gone. It's, it's very brief, our life here on earth. It's wise to prepare for the future, but James warns against presuming that we know what the future holds for us apart from God's involvement. There were people who expected and assumed they'd have years to invest in their pursuits to seek profit when they weren't even, being, they weren't even assured of being alive tomorrow. It's a gross oversight to make plans for the future without seeking guidance from God and to focus primarily on making financial profit when riches cannot endure, they cannot save us. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 102, verse 11. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. He compared his days to a shadow that lengthens. A shadow that when you flick on a switch, the light just drives it away, and it's gone without memory. If a shadow could reason, it wouldn't plan on being around for very long, right? Um, because it's, there's no substance to it. It doesn't endure. Grass, it, it withers quickly. I made the mistake once. Uh, the boys had a sandbox in our front yard. I had a nice lawn and set the sandbox out there, took the lid off, put it by this round lid. It was on the grass for probably two or three hours. Well, went out to remove it. And there was this perfectly round scorched spot in the grass that had withered because of the heat of the sun and the condensation just shriveled it up. And so I learned a lesson that day. Don't leave the sandbox lid on the grass. Um, you know, that turf, it, it didn't make plans. Can you imagine grass is making plans to grow so tall? Well, it's the landscaper that decides how tall that grass is going to grow. And he will come through or she will come through and cut it down at the level they desire. And God does the same for us. David wrote in Psalm 144, 3 and 4, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. A passing shadow. A breath. A brief moment here, one moment, gone the next. It's estimated a person who lives 80 years will have taken 672 million plus breaths in their lifetime. Those breaths aren't making plans. One's going to come right after the other. And our lives, they are, they are short. And the longer you live, I think the faster time goes. Daniel told Belshazzar, God holds our breath and all his ways in his hands. In Daniel 5.23, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to a parable Jesus told. It follows on from what we've already heard with Jesus and the covetous man in Luke 12, verse 16. 
Jesus said, beware of covetousness. And then he launches into this parable. It says, then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A parable is a story to illustrate spiritual truth. Jesus says this, the ground of a rich man yielded plentifully. The man's wealth, it was taken from the ground created by God, whom the man did not think to thank or acknowledge. He did not seek him about what to do with what he gained. The first part of Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So the wealth and the power to get it all comes from God. The man did not ask God what to do, but it says he thought within himself. Well, my crop, it's way too big for my barns. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to build a larger barn. But notice how he says it. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. I will store all my crops. I will say to my soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This man that many would call successful and seek to emulate, God called a fool because in all his planning, he did not consider God who gave him the power to have wealth. The God who would require his life that night. And the man had no idea. God asked, whose will those things be which you have provided? Well, they would be eaten by others. They would be left in the fields to rot. No one would get them. It's obvious that a man's uh, soul that could no longer possess a body has no power to possess those possessions that he once had, that wealth that's now passed to someone else. The tone of the rich man is saying, I will do this and I will do that. It reminds me of the tone of Satan in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. The prophet says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. James has already established God sets himself in battle array against the proud. He opposes that satanic will that boasts about what I will do. I will do this. I will do that. Satan, he sought to enrich himself with honor, power, authority, and fame, but he would be cast down by God and brought to nothing. And Jesus said of this foolish rich man, whose soul was required of him, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In another place, Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What does it profit to have a record harvest, to eat, drink, and be merry when you're heading towards ruin because you are not rich toward God? 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says, we're not to trust in riches, 
but in God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. No man can be rich toward God who is independent from him. Like a vapor, man, his plans, his wealth, it is gone. Our, our lives will vanish away. So what should we do instead of boasting what we will do? James 4, 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Instead of making future plans without having God in mind, we ought to submit ourselves to the will of God in our choices and in our speech. How different is I will do this from if the Lord wills, we shall live, right? <laughs> Let's not skip over that. Like we might not, we really might not be alive tomorrow. So let's, since our lives are in his hands, let's commit our life to his hands and realize that we exist only by his grace because he has created us and loves us and has sustained us to this point. So he needs to be the one we seek and we thank. And we're not just consulting him to say, what, what should I do here? And, and I'll decide if I want to do it or not. When we know his will, we ought to do it. To thank him, to give, to joyfully receive. That's what we ought to do. James reveals making future plans without taking account for God and his will. It results in arrogant boasting and all such boasting is evil. We don't often think of boasting as being evil, but James lays it out for us clearly. When it comes to the future of ourselves on earth, we're to submit to God and his will, knowing that he is our life. Without him, we can do nothing. And we do not know everything. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know him who holds our breath and our lives in his hands. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Unless the Lord directs our steps, we cannot stay the course. Our vision's not that good. Our discipline, not that great. So we must follow him and entrust ourselves to him. We have to surrender our lives to his will as Jesus did in Gethsemane when he said before the Father, not my will be done, but yours. God's given every person the freedom to choose and my will is always standing in scripture in opposition to God's will. So there's man's will and there's God's will. Man thinks about storing up goods in a barn, about a building project. I'm going to make that barn better than it is now, bigger. I'm going to think about eating and drinking and, and relaxing and that, that'll be the life I want to live. But God those plans could be undone in a moment, but God's plans, they're eternal, they're enduring. He has promised us a place with him for eternity in heaven and that we are partakers with him, with Jesus as children of God, co-heirs with him. Now, if I was to ask you to define or to describe what boasting is, you might start talk about behavior, like bragging, trotting out your success uh, to make others look not as impressive that does illustrate how we can boast, but the Strong's Concordance, it simply defines boasting as self-confidence. There's a lot of people who have self-confidence who aren't always talking about what they've accomplished. They have confidence in their own abilities, 
in their experience, in their reason, in their resolve, in their discipline, in their manner of life. They can have a lot of confidence in these things rather than in God. And that sort of self-confidence is evil. This boasting James talks about, it's a subtle, it's an insidious result of pride and confidence in self rather than God. It's the root of countless sins. Saul the Pharisee, who became Paul the apostle of Jesus, is a great example of how knowing God is to change us, the way we speak and the way we act. Acts 9, it says that Saul breathed out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of Jesus. And when you talk, you're breathing out. That's why there's that uh, fog and cold weather when you're speaking, right? So he's breathing out. He's boasting about what he's going to do when he finds these Christians and what great lengths he's willing to go to to see them arrested. He went to the high priest. He requested letters that gave him authority to bind uh, followers of Jesus, to bring them back bound to Jerusalem. He was like, I will find them and I will arrest them, right? Well, on the road to Damascus, what happened? Jesus himself meets him in the road, blinds him. He falls off his animal and Acts 9, 6 says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what to do. So take a step of faith, go into the city, you'll receive further instruction. Saul believed Jesus. His manner of life changed completely after this. We don't see him doing what he thought was best after that time as a rule. In Acts 18, 21, he said this to the brethren. He said, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. In 1 Corinthians 16, 7, he said, I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Very different than I will find them. I will arrest them. Paul didn't suppose he knew God's will perfectly about what the future held for him on earth. But in surrender to God, he pressed on in faith and obedience by doing what he knew was right to do as a manner of life. That was his, that was his aim, to glorify God and to honor him, to do his will. So after revealing the folly of sin and self-confidence, James 4 concludes with, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now this book is full of exhortations of good we should do. And since God has made known to us his will, it's sin when we know to do good, but we do not do it. We choose not to. It says, to him it is sin. That's an important distinction. Your job is not to convince people to ascribe to your convictions, but for you to know God, for you to submit yourself to him. And today, God holds you accountable to walk according to what you know is good, what you know to be God's will. It's your personal responsibility to follow it, not for you to make someone else follow what you, what you have come to conclusion is God's will for their life. God wants you to do what is his will for your life. And it's revealed in scripture. It's revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. If you go back to Luke 12, Luke 12 was just a, a great passage for this. 
this week, Luke 12, verse 42. There's another parable that Jesus told in the same section, and it talks about um, faithful servants. Let's read this together. Luke 12, 42, and the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant begins, says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. God has a great blessing for his servants who are faithful who are wise to know his will and to keep doing it, to be faithful in their service to him. In this parable, a servant was given the responsibility of managing his master's estate while his master was away on a trip. And when the master did not immediately return, the, he began to abuse his position of authority. He started beating up the male and female servants. And his job was to make sure they were well fed, that they were provided for, that they were were able to do their jobs as the servants of the master who was away. And how shocked do you suppose that servant would be when he has been uh, abusing his authority, he's been punching up and threatening and boasting about how he ha I'm in charge now, the master's away, I get to say what's going on, and, and boasting about his authority, and I can just see him, right? He's sitting there. He's calling for another round. He's like, bring that in here. You know who's in charge right now. Can you imagine the fire in the eyes of the master when he comes home and he sees, unexpectedly, and he sees his male and female servants weeping, bloodied, bashed up, and the smell of alcohol on the breath of that man who's talking about his authority, and he turns around thinking he's getting another round, and he sees the master Jesus said, well, when he sees him, he's going to cut him in two and give him his portion with the unbelievers. That's a very strong statement. That self-confident, that self-serving servant, he would be judged. The servant who knew his master's will did not prepare himself or do according to his will would be beaten with many stripes. But the one who was ignorant of it, didn't know, would be beaten with few. And there's that principle. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Has God not freely given us all things? God requires much of us because he's given us much. And so this should be sobering. This should be, make us circumspect about the way that we speak, that we do not judge people, that we do not speak harshly. We do not say, I will. We do not boast in our arrogance, knowing that our lives are frail, that our time is short and the master is at the door. Jesus is coming and he, he, we will be meeting with him before we think we will. So we need to be ready. So what is God's will for us to do? As I went back through the passage just to read through, well, 
to count it all joy when we fall into various trials, to ask God for wisdom, believing, to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, we're to lay aside the filth of pride, the boasting, the self-reliance, to receive with meekness the word of God and show by good conduct that our works are done in the meekness of wisdom as we submit to God. Because God gives grace to the humble, it's fitting to close with that verse that we began with in James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What are our lives without Jesus? For all who trust him, we have the sure promise of blessing in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We don't know how many breaths we have left, but may we use our remaining ones to bless the Lord as we do good according to his will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience and your long-suffering with us and with this world that you desire to come to know you as God. Thank you that in your kingdom you have a place for sinners, that you give us the opportunity to repent, that you have made your will known to us through your word, and that you have given us exceedingly great and precious promises, such wisdom from God and Christ who has become wisdom for us. Thank you that you've made known to us your will, that we're not in the dark because Jesus is the light of the world, and that you've given us an eternal hope through him that we can be forgiven, we can be saved, we can be born again and go from saying, I will, I will, to saying, if the Lord wills, if the Lord permits, knowing your will and doing what's good. I pray that you would quicken us, Lord, to recognize our need to walk wisely, our need to change, and to be those who bless the Lord with all our souls, all our days, May everything that has breath praise the Lord, and may we be among them, Lord, because you are worthy. We, we love you and praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ, that he has become wisdom for us, and that we have a hope of heaven and of uh, being in your presence forever. Praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless.